marks a number of odd firsts for Superhero Rewind. It'll be the first time I've covered anything non-fiction in this series. It's the first time I've tackled an entire TV show in an overview format. It'll be the first reality series I've ever reviewed in any format. And it'll be the first time I've put myself in a position to criticize the great Generalissimo himself, Stan Lee. Who Wants to Be a Superhero is a really strange piece of work, and so this, no doubt, is going to be a really strange review. In fact, working my way back through the series in preparation for this, I considered scrapping this as a subject for a rewind altogether. It's not a fictional narrative. I can't really do my standard in-depth story analysis thing. It's difficult to decide what sort of standards to hold it to. I mean, you can compare the overall production quality, the originality of the challenges, and its ratio of real stuff going on to fake stuff going on to that of other reality shows, but at the end of the day, a lot of it boils down to taste. You might know how mindless and drawn out and fake it is and enjoy it despite all that. It's a little like professional wrestling in that you have to know at least some percentage of it is scripted and staged going in. That's true of a lot of reality TV, but who wants to be a superhero particularly has a reputation for that. The show ran for two seasons starting in 2006 on the Sci-Fi Channel. Contestants each create their own superhero concept, costume, and persona and compete in character to see who, according to Stan Lee, has the human qualities that make a great superhero. In the traditional competitive reality show formula, the superheroes live in a house or secret lair together as they're put through a variety of challenges that are, most of them, intended to be about more than simply completing a task or getting to the finish line. There's usually a secret character trait or virtue Stan is testing in each challenge, like honesty, courage, selflessness, or integrity. Stan appears as a larger-than-life Oz-like figure, as Major Victory describes him, always on a television or a monitor, providing instructions 
and feedback remotely, like Charlie in Charlie's Angels. Stan says he's looking for his next great superhero, and it's pitched from the beginning like the winner's character could become a massively successful property, like Stan Lee's most famous heroes, like Spider-Man. But it's been several decades since he actually created anything with that kind of staying power, and his modern efforts in the superhero genre have been, I'm sorry to say, lackluster and a little generic. Naturally, that never comes up, and the prize of immortality is talked up as being a lot more impressive and lavish than it turns out to be. In the first season, the winner's character would be made into a comic book that Stan would write, and he or she would be featured in a Sci-Fi Channel original movie. The winner also gets a trip for two at a Universal Studios, but that's only briefly mentioned in the last episode, and I hate to say, maybe ends up being the best of the three prizes, only in that it's actually exactly as it sounds, and there's no fine print lameness, I wouldn't imagine. Don't get me wrong, Stan Lee writing a one-shot comic based on a character I came up with would be an absolute trip, but the real prize is hardly as grand as it's advertised. When Stan says, a comic book that I will create, I think it's reasonable to assume he means an ongoing comic, like a monthly or at least a miniseries. Technically, yes, he created a comic book, a single issue that tells Feedback's origin story, Feedback being the winner of the first season. And then, of course, he does it again for the second season with Diffuser. But whenever a creator in the business says he has a new comic book coming out, it's just implied that it's a series. Otherwise, it's pitched as a graphic novel. Unless Who Wants to Be a Superhero had somehow become the number one show on television, a single issue at Dark Horse wasn't likely to generate the sales for that character to catch on and turn into a real, viable property. Which really feels like the point initially. Otherwise, what's all this talk about looking for a good role model for children or a fresh, new hero for today. It doesn't watch like the only opportunity the winner is going to really have to inspire people is his or her time on a low-budget sci-fi channel reality show, but that's essentially what happened. I guess Feedback was lucky that the show got another season, so he had a little more exposure, wrangling up the heroes in the first episode of season two and hosting the after show online. But really? These people dropped everything they were doing, left their families and their lives for several weeks, went through a battery of medical and psychological tests, had to fill out an obscene amount of paperwork? Believe me, I've been there. And their very moral fiber was on trial on national television, all for the chance to be immortalized in a 40-page comic called Who Wants to Be a Superhero? not even titled with his or her character's name, and in Feedback's case, with a cover that's not even as cool as the one he saw in the series. But what about the movie, you ask? Oh man, I couldn't even believe how that was handled. Again, everything about the way this was worded was misleading. Each episode, the winner will be featured in a Sci-Fi Channel Saturday Night original movie. Was there anyone who didn't think that meant a movie starring the superhero? Like, a movie I'd have to someday review on Superhero Rewind. Well, I'm not gonna have to, because after he won, Feedback didn't get a movie, and the movie he appeared in wasn't even in the superhero genre. He was featured in a typical sci-fi monster B-movie called Megasnake, which, by the way, my wife loved because she thinks ridiculous, cheesy B-monster movies about snakes and sharks are the cat's pajamas, but even she admitted that Matthew Atherton got totally screwed with a really cheap, blatant insert cameo. He fights the snake for three minutes at a carnival. That's it. At least he has his superpowers. And it's not like the contestants knew ahead of time. In an interview Atherton gave right after the finale, he said he hoped the whole cast would be brought back and it would play like a team movie with maybe feedback as the leader. 
He had no idea. And I'm sure he was super gracious about it because he seemed to keep up the selfless attitude of the superhero at all times, but this production made the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow look way bigger and way fuller of actual gold than it really was. So then the prizes were refined and altered for season two. The comic was still touted as the big prize. The announcer called the feedback comic a hit in the first episode of the second season. That is such an easy word to throw around. It sold 12,000 copies and was number 156 on the comic sales chart in July of 2007. The Diffusers comic wasn't even written by Stan Lee. It was written by Jeremy Barlow, who was a major editor and Star Wars writer at Dark Horse. The winner was supposed to be in a movie again, but after Megasnake, I can't imagine any of the contestants were hopeful to get anything more than another glorified cameo in a B-movie. For the longest time, I didn't think the Diffuser got his movie cameo, but he actually does show up in a Sci-Fi Channel original movie with a lot less fanfare. I never heard about it, possibly because it came out so much later, and possibly because fewer people were actively waiting for his movie to come out, knowing it was likely just another lame monster movie appearance. Jarrett Crippen shows up in a more substantial supporting role in his movie, but it's still not a superhero film, and he doesn't even get to play the Diffuser. He's an eccentric police deputy acting alongside Kevin Sorbo's sheriff, who's amused by Crippen's obsession with a superhero who looks just like him. Yeah, the Diffuser is sort of there on the wallpaper in this guy's computer. He gets caught watching a classroom video of the Diffuser, and I can't tell who exactly the superhero is supposed to be in this. Is he an actual crime fighter, or is he a mascot of some kind? It's ultra-contrived and totally pointless. I think it's supposed to imply that maybe this guy really is the Diffuser, and the deputy is his secret identity, but there's no reveal at the end. It's just a really awkward one-scene gag that anyone not familiar with who wants to be a superhero would raise an eyebrow at. And fans of the show would raise an eyebrow at anyway. Really? That's how you got the diffuser in there? Okay. But he does get to rescue a girl at the end from the lightning monster, so at least he gets to do something heroic. And the big addition to the prize lineup was supposed to be an action figure, which would have been made by Shocker Toys, who doesn't get a shout-out or any kind of advertising in the series. The final three contestants get prototype figures in the show, which are really more like dolls, but the actual figures, which I seriously doubt would have looked anything like the prototypes, were never released. A lot of things about this production felt cheap. I looked past the cheesy effects, which were totally unnecessary anyway. I, yeah, it's about superheroes, but we all know those costumes aren't really being disintegrated in the garbage can, and there's not really a giant satellite dish on top of the warehouse concealed the lair, and I even went with the super simple $1.95 challenges in the first season. But somehow, knowing what little the contestants were really playing for soured the experience. No one knows why it wasn't renewed for a third season. Poor ratings may have led to its cancellation, as evidenced by the fact that there was apparently so little interest in the property, Shocker never made its line of figures, but it was never officially cancelled, and there was never an official statement from Stan Lee or Nash Entertainment, so I'm not sure. There was a British version in 2009 with kid competitors, and I'd have loved to watch that and include it in my discussion here, but I haven't found any way to watch it as it never got a DVD release like the American series, and it's not streaming anywhere. Stan Lee passes the torch to a singer-TV host duo that have no experience working in comics or doing anything related to superheroes, and part of the prize is going to Los Angeles to meet Stan Lee. It included superheroes like Mega Might Man, Nine Lives, Dolphin Girl, and the subtly named Walking PSA SGW, which stands for Stop Global Warming. 
His costume is great. His full acronym is on his chest, but if you only looked at his belt, you'd think he was advocating for global warming. I like that show's term for elimination better than the adult show, too. Rather than turning in your costume, you power down. And apparently there were ways to earn immunity in that show, which we never had in two seasons in the American one. I prefer the challenges and overall execution of the second season, but I like the cast in the first better. More of that cast have character concepts that feel like actual comic book superheroes to me. A lot of the characters in the second season are more ambiguous and generic. In the first, you get Major Victory, a classic flying charismatic hero with a cape and a perfect haircut who makes you wonder what he's a major of. Although, as much as I like Chris Waters, his name is a bit of a cheat, as there's already a Major Victory at Marvel, a cosmic character named Vance Astrovic, who's part of the Guardians of the Galaxy in the future. But you also get Cell Phone Girl, who has the power to do whatever a cell phone can, Monkey Woman, who does whatever monkeys do, and even Lemuria, a light-based hero who throws fireballs. You get cool ideas in the second season, like Mindset, a hero who solves problems with his intellect and has armor from the future, but you also get Limelight, who can't tell you what the heck she's all about and what her powers are, Whip Snap, who I guess, uh, has a whip, and Hygiena, who just looks like a maid and has cleaning powers, which could work, but what she's wearing doesn't stand out enough as an actual costume. And that has been done really well. American Made from the Tick comes to mind. But a lot of the challenges in the first season are lame and horribly padded out because there's just not enough to them. I feel really bad for the little girl in the challenge where the heroes are supposed to change into their supersuits and then race to the finish line. She's pretending to look for her mother, and if you didn't notice her and try to help, you failed the true secret mission. She just has to stand there and keep crying and crying over and over while ten different superheroes run past her one at a time. One of the lamest challenges happens about midway through, where the heroes are told they have to walk across a plank between two buildings to help a woman across and blindfolded. But obviously that's too insanely dangerous, so the heroes are shown a plank across the buildings, but what they walk across blindfold is actually solid ground. I'm not saying it's lame because they didn't have to do a ridiculously dangerous stunt that might have gotten them killed, but it had to have been really obvious they weren't going across buildings because they were walking across a plank of wood with exercise mats underneath. The contestants all act like they have no idea what's going on, but the point of the challenge was courage, and every single one of them did it, I imagine because most of them weren't really afraid once they got on the plank. I think that one ended up being pretty pointless. I also really dislike the self-sacrifice challenge, where Stan asks the contestants to choose a hero they most think should go home. If they don't choose themselves, they fail the test. A superhero always puts himself on the line to save others, which is an idea that makes sense in theory. But the trouble with it is that it's impossible to know if anyone does it for genuine reasons or if it's just because they know that's the answer to the test. When Lemuria tells Stan she would choose to send herself home, she says to the private interview camera that Stan wasn't going to put one over on her. She said that because it was the correct answer, like she was solving a riddle, not because she was really willing to fall on her own sword. Apparently, the heroes are given a list of virtues and code of conduct they'll be tested on throughout the series at the beginning of the show. Lemuria says that's something she knew was coming, and Stan says he said that was going to be a big thing he'd test them on. But we're not privy to any of that, and not knowing going in makes that challenge all the stranger. The audience is often forgotten about in the editing room. There's a lot of information the heroes have that we don't, and that makes it difficult to appreciate the journey they're going on. Not to mention all the stuff that's obviously missing and takes me out. At one point, Major Victory is suddenly wearing a badge from a trivia challenge he won, according to that interview with Feedback, that we didn't get to see. 
And the weirdest one is Lemuria's altered makeover costume. Her own costume is really low-cut, but the new suit is more conservative. Until the next episode, when unceremoniously it's got a totally different sort of top and it's wide open again. It's easy to assume a lot of the ladies are chosen for sex appeal with their scantily clad and skimpy outfits, assuming the audience for this show would include a largely male demographic. But it's interesting that it was someone in the production that chose a less revealing outfit for Lumeria initially, and then it suddenly changes between episodes. If it was something she requested, it seems a little unfair that Teveculus had to go the rest of the show in his own homemade costume after he complained about his makeover without getting a new version of his suit that he likes better. It would also be nice, from the beginning, to know what the contestants' characters are all about. What's their backstory and power set? When each person is introduced coming out of the limousine in the first episode of Season 1, I'd have had them deliver a brief character profile and voiceover. The show is so padded, especially in the first season, it watches like it should have been a half hour, but there's a lot cut and a lot of information it had plenty of room to impart if you cut the fat which, incidentally, was the insensitive cutesy phrase used in eliminations in the earliest seasons of The Biggest Loser. In the second season, there's a challenge where each hero has to explain his or her powers to Stan, and that's in the second episode. That's better, but we only get the Cliff's Notes versions. I still don't have a great sense of who, on paper, might make the most exciting or intriguing or original superhero. But then that's my biggest problem with this series. The basic premise is convoluted and unfocused, and a lot of the other issues I have with the series stem from that. You can't decide if Stan is looking for the best character concept or the most altruistic and wise human being. Is it about figuring out what idea is best for the comic book, or is it about finding the person who would make for the best real-world role model? The two don't blend well, and it almost feels like there are two different potential shows here, one about comic book creating and one about public service. Sometimes eliminations are about integrity and honesty, and sometimes they're about stuff you'd never have to deal with in the real world, like giving away your secret identity. You're on national television, and your names are on the screen. Everyone knows who you are already. And sure, there's a make-believe component to the whole thing, but while the show is a little exploitative of geeks at a time when there's still more than remnants of a world that majoritively makes fun of people who dress up and go to conventions, with some of that spirit the 90s documentary Trekkies had, it's not a parody of reality shows. It's asking the contestants and the audience to take it at least somewhat seriously. A smarter show might have made it less about the costumes and the superhero rules and created a series of character trials so contestants would have to earn the right to be called a superhero and wear a costume. Now, obviously, the flashy suits and goofy names are what the show was sold on, but I think that would have fit the premise better. The show is called, after all, Who Wants to Be a Superhero, not Who Wants to Be a Superhero Validated by Stan Lee, or Just Imagine Stan Lee Creating the Superhero You Already Created. And even if everybody was wearing costumes all the way through the show, it could be less about the character concepts and more about auditioning for a position that would actually utilize those skills and make a difference to people. Like some kind of a mascot at a theme park, or a costume character paid to travel the country motivating people. That was an idea my wife came up with, and I like it a lot. Come up with a way to turn someone into as close to a real-life superhero as you can without encouraging rogue vigilante behavior. Alternatively, it might have been all about the character creation, and it could have been a contest for writers and artists trying to break into the comic book business. As I always say, I don't want to rewrite the movie, or in this case, the reality show premise, but I think that either of these two ideas that are at odds together 
could work beautifully on their own. There's a lot improved about the second season. The episode count is extended from 6 to 8, the challenges are more elaborate, and there's a little connective tissue between the episodes, as a lot of the challenges are framed as machinations of the generic but hilariously voiced Dr. Dark, and no, he's not immortal, doesn't have an ancient relic that gives him powers, and his name isn't spelled with an H. There's more of an emphasis on teen challenges, so we see the heroes interact more, and I like the idea of separating the heroes from the sidekicks. When it was airing, I hoped the third season might go further with that idea, and maybe pair a winning superhero at the end with a runner-up sidekick. Several challenges are about facing fears in more typical comic book situations, like a spelling bee in a bee-infested death trap orchestrated by the bad Russian-accented bee sting, where real stinging bees fill the chamber when you get an incorrect answer. Riding a face-first roller coaster to simulate flying and scope out colored cylinders to crack a code at a theme park, which tests a lot of the hero's fear of heights and physical constitution, and crawling through an insect and snake-infested sewer to defuse a bomb. There are a couple of recycled challenges from the previous season, but they're improved on. Well, the dog challenge is improved on, with three heroes working together against the dogs to shut off a power station and stop a giant clone of Stan Lee, which is vintage pre-Sifi sci-fi channel cheese, and Stan is hysterical, pretending to be a dinosaur-like monster. The challenges are more Nickelodeon than in the first season, but there's more to them, and there's a real effort made to get more ambitious and make it clearer that the contest is more about acting and looking heroic than than it is about having the best superhero concept. That season also tweaks odd choices from the first, like having the contestants remove enough of their costumes to not be indecent when they're eliminated and Stan says, turn in your costume, but having them leave the lair still wearing the bulk of their super suits? I say they're not indecent. Creature is hardly wearing anything when she turns in her costume, and Monkey Woman can hardly put anything in the receptacle. Her costume is already a bikini. In the second season, the cheesy effect is in transforming the hero back into his or her street clothes like a Power Ranger demorphic which is less awkward and makes more sense, because now they're not still in costume after they've turned in their costume. When I followed the first season as it aired, I was really invested in it, and I can't totally explain why. In a lot of ways, it doesn't hold up well a decade later, and I started to really wonder what I ever saw in it about halfway through season one on this viewing. But by the finale, I was once again really entertained by it, much to my astonishment. There are so many reasons I should dislike this show. It's poor direction and cinematography, it's incessant hand-holding, the way certain contestants' motives and personality quirks are exaggerated to manufacture drama, and the arbitrary and sometimes contradictory moral standards they're judged by. But I still love its unapologetic cheese factor. Stan Lee is a joy to watch as a host. He infuses the show with a long-lost, simple, 60s understanding of the superhero, which sometimes plays as out-of-touch and outmoded. But Stan is so charming, it's infectious. It has the flavor of those early Marvel Stan soapbox pages. Some of the contestants are legitimately talented and a ton of fun to watch. Hyperstrike is my favorite of the entire show, a kid whose background is a real-life superhero origin. He grew up in the circus, has mad acrobatic skills, and pushed himself to his mental and physical limits after he was incessantly bullied as a kid. Feedback also has a great superhero origin story and was genuinely moving. The show doesn't have to oversell his tragedy to make me care. His father committed suicide when he was a kid, and reading Spider-Man helped give him the life lessons he needed to grow up. He's got a childlike wonder and enthusiasm that did a lot to help energize the whole show, and his win is absolutely deserved. 
Major Victory is hilarious. He also has a moving story, going on the show hoping to prove himself to his estranged daughter after some poor choices that distanced him from his family. When the show first aired, I imagined myself as a contestant, thinking about what I'd do if I were under similar scrutiny, and wondering if I was savvy and cunning enough to get into Stan Lee's mind and avoid elimination. I detested reality television back then, so I was shocked not only that I kept watching, but that I was so sucked in, like Master Splinter watching his daytime soaps. I wondered if there was something wrong with me, if I'd lowered my standards too much. If I was just so starved for superheroes on the screen, I'd watch anything with people wearing capes and tights. Ultimately, I think it captured my imagination because I always fantasized growing up about actually putting on a costume and fighting crime. And I like the idea of a show that was all about being the best version of yourself, encouraging people to live their lives looking for opportunities to help people and set a good example everywhere they go. It's a show that, despite all my criticisms, still has a special place for me. It was my main inspiration for starting my own competitive reality series on Geekvolution, who reviews the reviewers. A contest I've won now four times, which sees contestants competing in a series of video review challenges to help them gain skills and exposure online. I was also very nearly on a similar reality series myself in 2012, called King of the Nerds. The production flew 14 of us out, but only chose 11. I did a lot of interviewing and screen testing there and learned a great deal about television production from the inside. It was a really eye-opening experience, despite my only being there for two days. Much of the reason I went out for that show was because I never had the opportunity to try out for Who Wants to Be a Superhero. Since then, I've really mellowed out on my hatred for reality TV, especially the competitive stuff. I found it easier to appreciate some of those shows as they've stopped dominating the airwaves, and scripted TV has come back with a vengeance. In the mid-2000s, genre TV, specifically science fiction, seemed to have its head in a noose, and it seemed like a lot of viewers were more interested in gossip and artificial drama packaged as reality than they were in compelling stories you could sink your teeth into and without having to wonder if what you were watching was real. But But now, there's so much reality, and arguably some actual real reality, coming out of regular people's homes all over the world and broadcast on YouTube and Twitch, that a lot of folks, especially younger people, don't seem as interested in reality that's professionally packaged, sterilized, and edited for an hour format. And with the advent of the streaming platform and the competition that's generated with traditional broadcast programming, there's more variety in scripted fictional TV in any given year that it would be impossible to keep up with it all. I can't keep up with the superhero genre alone. I've even sampled and enjoyed a few reality shows since then. I watched several things for research when I found out I was being considered to be cast in a show like that myself. This was before all the talk about the questionable ways in which the contestants on The Biggest Loser were allegedly losing weight. And that show's so mired in scandal now, it's been totally axed. I like shows like MasterChef Junior that are more focused and stick to the contest at hand, a little more like game shows rather than trying to emotionally manipulate the viewer. Let those tear-jerky moments happen naturally if they happen at all. It drove me nuts when that kind of thing started wending its way into actual standalone game shows, like Minute to Win It, where you'd have to sit through somebody's sad sack backstory before you watched him make a fool out of himself on national television. Seriously, dude. I'm sorry your dad walked out on you when you were two, or that you were born without the ability to smell, or that you've never lived in a home that didn't say this side up on top. But I'm not here to be moved. I just want to know if you can stack 36 cups in a pyramid and then put them back in a single stack in under 60 seconds. 
A good story is a good story, real or imagined, and both only work when they're natural and they don't try too hard. That's why good fiction resonates. When it's working, we get caught up in characters' lives like they're real people, and some part of us forgets that what we're watching isn't really happening. If a good story happens inside a reality show, it's either because the writing is just that good, in which case you might as well be making a scripted fictional series, or it's because you let the real people's actions drive an organically forming narrative, and you added all the boring stuff out. Unfortunately, Who Wants to Be a Superhero really isn't that smart about it. It does force the drama, although not to the degree some other shows I've seen do, and it's impossible to tell who these people really are and what really happened to them during the competition, because there's obviously so much missing, and it's edited to invite the viewer to draw conclusions they might not have if they'd really been there. So when I'm talking about the people in this show, I'm not necessarily commenting on actual human beings, but the somewhat fictional characters they've been reduced to by the producers of the show. There's clearly a degree of orchestration of events here, what with plot twists like a contestant who gets ejected from the lair only to become the villain of the series after that, with the obviously staged and likely planned from the very beginning transformation of the Iron Enforcer into the Dark Enforcer. I'd like to complain about how many of the contestants in both seasons overreact to moments like that, acting as if someone has really betrayed them or they've been actually violated in some way, when they know they're part of a TV production with pre-planned plot twists. But there's no way to know how much of that is scripted. Was anyone really upset with the Iron Enforcer for turning on them? And when it's implied there might be a mole in the second season... Was anyone really upset with whoever that might be when they'd have to know it's probably a hired actor, like Rhodey Art spelled backwards as traitor from the first episode of the first season? I never understand how people can get that worked up about made-up developments in a controlled environment, or why contestants act like people getting eliminated each episode is this novel, crazy, brand-new idea that isn't how all these shows work. Like, that's the format. I get being sad that a new friend you've made is leaving, but some of these folks treat it like the show came up with that. And speaking of the Dark Enforcer, I'm glad we started the second season with a villain from the beginning and played him like Stan's enemy rather than his lackey. The moral arbiter of superhero behavior really shouldn't be working with supervillains, even if it's all staged just to play up the motif of the show. As with all reality shows of this kind... All we have are the moments the producers elect to show us and the versions of each of these individuals that are created by the specific tapestry they've chosen to weave. There's some discussion of identity in the series, not just the golden superhero rule of keeping one's identity a secret, but the facade each contestant creates in cosplaying as his or her respective homemade character versus the person each of them really is in their private lives. There's some discussion about how difficult it is to keep that mask on all the time in front of people you're living in a house with for days or weeks at a time. And that's what being a superhero is all about, becoming the best, most impenetrable version of yourself and setting the best example all the time. But there's also a third person that shines through more than either the superhero or the fallible human being, and that's the television ratings persona, the person the series turns you into after you've shot every frame of footage to be presented to the viewing public and entice people to keep watching. You have some control over who that person is because an editor only has what you give them to work with. If you never swear at anyone, or make out with a cast member, or lock yourself in a bathroom and refuse to come out, only two of those three things happen in either season of this show, there's only so much that can be done to cast you in an unflattering or even inaccurate light. But all you have to do is play the same clip of an isolated incident over and over, and you can make people think a contestant is a drama queen, or prone to breaking the law, or antisocial, or a total ditz. 
And suddenly, real people, or even their own fictional creations, become someone else's vision. And once it became obvious that any of that kind of manipulation was going on, I became skeptical of everything I was being shown. And I have to watch the show mostly as a fantasy, a fictitious version of events to which I'd never know the whole story. It's clear reading any interview with a contestant or watching the feedback after show during the second season, which unfortunately isn't available to watch anymore, that there's more to all these people than we can glean from the show itself. Cell Phone Girl is surprisingly articulate, ambitious, and forward-thinking compared to the clueless bimbo she comes off as in the series. She went on to be a successful bodybuilder. The Iron Enforcer is, according to feedback, the nicest guy in the world. All that stuff about not being there to make friends with these pinheads was apparently an act. And everyone who interacted with Fat Mama describes her as much more gracious and together than she's presented as in the show, with her randomly changing motivations. So let's talk about some of those moments where Stan's moral judgments seem arbitrary and his rules too absolute. A decision a contestant makes will be spun as less than noble when it would have been just as easy to praise that choice, interpreting it through some other moral context or ignoring it altogether. And because it's so arbitrary, some of his calls totally contradict choices he's made earlier in the series. For example, Stan chastises Tyveculus for not being straight with him during the costume makeover. Everybody else loves their new costumes, most of which are cheap and unimpressive by today's high cosplay standards, but I think Feedback, Victory, and even Lumeria look pretty great, but Tyveculus thinks his is silly. Everything's relative. It's such a corny show, I wouldn't have even thought to criticize the costumes, but this is a suit based on his original concept, so he's got every reason to be critical. He especially hates the giant Roman soldier fan on top of his head. It's very mighty Agrippa Roman god of the aqueduct. Tyveculus lies to Stan and says he loves the costume, but ultimately decides he can't live with it. He goes back to Stan and admits he's unhappy, so Stan puts him back in his old costume. Tyveculus goes on the chopping block that elimination, and Stan says he doesn't mind that Tyveculus didn't like his costume, but that he should have been honest with him from the beginning. Superheroes are always honest. Tyveculus does lie right to his face, as Stan says, but because Stan's standard seems so vague to me, I could just as easily have seen him praise Tyveculus for going along with the costume because superheroes don't complain about little things or superheroes make sacrifices so as not to hurt other people's feelings. I actually agree with Stan on that one, although I think Tyveculus should have gotten points for admitting his mistake. And I'm not totally sure Tyveculus wasn't intentionally set up for failure there. It does kind of watch like the production maybe went out of its way to make his costume more over-the-top than the others? Like Stan was maybe expecting Tiveculus to question the suit, creating a personal challenge just for him? If that's the case, and it very well might not be, but that would have been super unfair. And yet, at least, he wasn't actually eliminated that round. But then in the second season, Stan does a complete 180 when Hyperstrike says he doesn't like his new costume. He didn't lie about it first and then complain. He said straight up he's not feeling it, and he misses his old costume. Again, I would have really cried foul if he'd been eliminated that week, but Hyperstrike did exactly what Stan told Tiveculus he should have done, and he still got reprimanded. There's just no winning on this show if you don't like your costume. And Stan's whole beef with Hyperstrike is just that he thinks the costume looks great and Hyperstrike is wrong. And I agree, I actually really like that suit. But Hyperstrike, as far as what we see on the screen, is polite, and he doesn't come off as ungrateful. That's his character. And to John, Hyperstrike doesn't wear spandex. 
This gets into a whole other issue, but I wonder why some contestants are chosen in the first place, because for some of them, Stan doesn't seem to like or really get their character's motif in the first place. John is clearly an anime guy, and his character isn't a traditionally American hero. His hyperblast is obviously right out of something like Dragon Ball Z. His costume is a martial arts uniform, and Stan turned it into a typical spandex suit, which isn't John's vision for the character. And of course, John, I'm sure, saw the first season and thought, okay, the superhero thing to do here is to own up to my disappointment rather than pretend to be cool with it. I guess Stan forgot what he said to Tyveculus the previous season. I was surprised John didn't bring Tyveculus up, but again, he might have, and we just didn't see it. And as close as he gets to the win, Hyperstrike weirdly gets shafted like that a few times. The most irritating hard and fast rule for me is the secret identity thing. The first characters Stan created for Marvel were the Fantastic Four, who are public heroes from the beginning. And he makes it a universal law here that heroes are to never reveal their identities, or even tell anyone anything about their personal lives. I sort of understand why Monkey Woman got the axe in the first season for that. That's a rule Stan established. She walks into a restaurant where she thinks there are no cameras, and she not only reveals her real name, but she gives the clerk advice on how to get on a reality show. Although, complaining that she's an actor is below the belt, as it's pretty clear when you look at the cast that the production intentionally prioritized actors. But when Hyperstrike does it, it's to create a rapport with the kids in the classroom and impart some wisdom about dealing with bullies and how overcoming adversity builds character. He reveals his last name to them, not his whole secret identity, just his last name, Stork, and talks about how hard kids in school made his life because of his name. Stan praises Fat Mama in the first season for striking a chord with the kids with her message, but he doesn't acknowledge how much the kids in Hyperstrike's case looked up to him for sharing his personal story. At some point, the silly, pointless superhero rule should go out the window when you have a real opportunity to inspire people. More than half the class voted for Hyperstrike as their favorite hero, and I don't think it was just because he could do backflips. The last example I want to mention is the other big absolute rule of never taking off any piece of your costume. Like the secret identity thing, I'd think you'd take that on a case-by-case basis. There are a couple moments where Major Victory does seem to do that because he's making light of his time as a male stripper, like when he takes his cape off for a little old lady to walk on as she crosses the street. Yeah, that's unnecessary. On the other hand, if you don't think superheroes should take their clothes off, maybe you shouldn't have a picture of a character called Stripperella, who Stan created, I might add, on the wall behind you through the entire competition. That's missing in the second season, and I wonder if the producers got mail about it. It's odd that at no point in either season does Stan ever use the word resourceful. You'd think in a dire situation where there are lives at stake, a superhero would be expected to use whatever is at his disposal to accomplish his mission. Would Stan put Batman on a red cube for taking off his cape if it was fireproof and he used it to save someone? He praises feedback in the City Walk Challenge for putting politeness ahead of all else when he has to search through a lady's purse and then refuses to leave it in disarray. He keeps his gloves on, trying to pick up change off the ground, and it's absurd. The premise is that you're following clues to find the Dark Enforcer who's going to put everyone there in danger. Should you really keep your gloves on and try to pick up change when you're trying to beat a clock and a bomb might go off? 
It's understandable in Season 2, then, that Mindset puts telling the truth above his teammate's safety in the Spelling Bee Challenge, because from Season 1, he's seen Stan put absolute rules ahead of common sense. Mindset refuses to spell the words wrong as Bee Sting insists, putting B-E-E in front of every word that begins with a B, and Stan says he shouldn't put that sort of truth ahead of the safety of others. But Stan praised feedback for doing something kind of similar, albeit in a theoretical situation. There weren't actually bees stinging his friends because he's taking too long or something. So I get why Mindset thought he was doing the right thing, at least according to what's been deemed most important in the past. It's also not always clear when the superheroes are supposed to take reality into consideration and when they're supposed to pretend like there's a danger that's not really there. There is one challenge in the second season where the heroes are trapped in a wooden crate and they have to fashion a pole to get the key to get out. That's probably my favorite challenge that season. And Stan doesn't complain about their taking off pieces of their costumes then, but he doesn't also specifically praise them for breaking that rule when it's necessary either. Rules are guidelines that sometimes are called to be broken by common sense and common decency, because no rulebook can anticipate every possible contingency. The Diffuser also gets dogged for this toward the end of the second season, when he gives a kid at a restaurant a piece of his costume. It's just Jack's, but he pretends like it's part of his superhero arsenal. It's not the same kind of heartfelt inspiration Hyperstrike exuded in the classroom challenge, but it was part of his connecting with kids. If I'd been the Diffuser, I might have rebutted Stan by mentioning the scene in Batman Begins, which was only two years old by that point, where Batman comforts a kid in an abusive household by giving him a gadget from his arsenal. Again, would Stan have put Batman on a red cube for that? I'm also not convinced that there aren't ulterior motives sometimes for keeping certain heroes in the lair over others. In Season 1, Stan seems too lenient to me on Fat Mama, who's constantly put through to the next round while people who perform better are asked to turn in their costumes. I'm not sure why the show seems to play favorites with Fat Mama. It might be that the cast and crew just likes her too much to be as critical of her as it is with other heroes like Teveculus or even Major Victory. It might be that Stan or the other producers like her as an atypical hero that represents regular working people, even though she seems confused in her message. But it was really surprising to me that despite Stan criticizing her on that point pretty late in the game, she goes all the way to the finals. She tells the kids in the classroom in the penultimate episode of season one that she's all about self-esteem. It doesn't matter what other people think of you, no matter what you look like, you should still love yourself and you can be a confident person. It's a real Mr. Rogers lesson. It's generic and nothing new, but important, as long as you're not telling kids to give up on taking care of themselves, to not try to improve themselves because it's too hard. Now that is clearly not what she means. But sometimes, I hate to say, it kind of comes off that way. She says that just because you're overweight doesn't mean you can't do the things other people do. But as we see in the last episode, during the stunt challenge, that's exactly what it means. At least for her. She can't jump across the green screen like feedback, and she steps down from the launcher because she doesn't want to hurt herself. She says, what am I trying to prove? And she's absolutely right. It would have been irresponsible and reckless of her to risk injury to try to prove she can do something she's obviously not physically prepared to do. She says she has kids to take care of. She can't hurt herself. She demonstrates that it's unrealistic and foolish to pretend like being out of shape doesn't sometimes limit your physical capabilities. And that doesn't mean it's okay for anyone to make fun of her or to try to guilt her about losing weight, and the choices you make for yourself are nobody's business but yours. I am not criticizing Nell for being overweight or for trying to inspire kids to like themselves. 
but she tells kids to eat better so they don't become overweight while simultaneously treating every case of obesity like it's just the way people are built. Fat mama, fat mama, I'm here to save the day. Fat mama, fat mama, I'll take your food away. Her character's superpower is eating donuts and becoming ten times her original size, and in staying in character, she's constantly eating donuts and other junk food throughout the show. The character has some fun potential, sure. I actually think she has one of the most dynamic comic covers, and she's hilarious in her fake movie trailer in the last episode. But I'm with Creature. Maybe she's sending the wrong message with all the donuts. Not like a lot of kids watched this show or would have read her one-shot Dark Horse comic or anything, but despite never making it clear what exactly she stands for and letting her character's eating habits slow her down in missions, especially on Universal City Walk when she's looking for clues to find the Dark Enforcer, Stan eliminates major victory. He says he's disappointed in her for the first time, because she took 40 minutes longer than the other two and didn't take the challenge seriously, more concerned with staying in character than she was completing the challenge in a superhero-like fashion. But his justification for dropping victory is that he's too much like a parody of a superhero, and that he's more concerned about being funny than being inspiring, almost as if... Even though he did take the City Walk Challenge more seriously, Fat Mama is still safe because she's preaching a message, never mind how confusing that message is. Really raised my eyebrow at this moment. Stan's complained about Victory taking his clothes off too much, which doesn't happen as often as he acts like it does, or at least not that we see, and when it does... It could easily be spun, as I said earlier, as resourcefulness. But this is the first time he outright calls Victory a parody. Victory is in the final three. That's a pretty general complaint about his personality and his character concept to just be bringing up now. You'd think Stan would have mentioned that Victory isn't quite what he's looking for a lot earlier in the competition and give him a chance to work on it. At the end of the day, I think the right hero won in the first season, even though Victory was my guy to win on first watch. But it's really strange that Fat Mama disappoints Stan goes through to the finals, and then that disappointment never comes up again. In the last episode, Stan just keeps talking about how hard a decision it is and how much they both deserve the win. And it comes off like it's the obligatory thing you have to say to manufacture the feeling of a tight race. If it was all about character concept and not at all about personal character, I'd say Fat Mama is one of the fresher and more fun superhero ideas. I mean, imagine a superhero that's all about the contradiction in the message she's sending. She doesn't want people to get the wrong idea from her donut eating, but she has to stay overweight in order to fight the bad guys, because that's where her superpowers come from. And that does seem to be the concept in the character. In both one-shots based on the winner's character, Stan incorporates some of the real person's background into the characters, and I'm really curious as to what he might have done with Fat Mama as a comic book. But it watches like the show wants to maybe rely on Fat Mama for more drama. This is also the episode where she locks herself in a bathroom and asks to be removed from the show. Sure, it'd be great if it wasn't two athletic, typically muscular, tall, white superhero men going to the finals. But if it's all about merit, Fat Mama really shouldn't have moved on, I don't think. The same thing sort of happens in the second season with Hygiena, who comes off less like a superhero and more like a housewife who just really thinks mothers and teachers should be represented in comics and superhero things. And she seems more OCD about cleanliness than she seems to want to fight crime. Stan even tells her that her catchphrase needs to be flipped from fighting grime and crime to fighting crime and grime. Priorities. But then, weirdly, when she gets to the finals, her old catchphrase is back in her fake movie trailer. 
I do think she deserved to get to the end more than Fat Mama, and my issues with her are more about her superhero concept rather than her performance. While she did come in last in most of the physical challenges, she really redeemed herself in the dog challenge toward the end, where she pitched a plan in which she's the bait for the dogs while Diffuser and Hyperstrike disable the power grid. I think she might have gotten as far as she did for the sake of variety like Fat Mama, but by the last episode, I was starting to buy into what Stan saw in her personal character. And at least he put all three of them to the end, because Diffuser and Hyperstrike would have both been robbed if one had been dropped in favor of her, especially given both of their performances in that penultimate episode. Diffuser, in finally finding a balance between leadership and being a team player, and Hyperstrike's fantastic, I don't deserve to go on to the finals unless you're 100% sure I have what it takes to be a hero speech. All in all, it's a deeply flawed concept with less than stellar execution that I can't stop going back to for whatever reason. I think this falls squarely in the category of guilty pleasure for me, a thing I know isn't very good, but that I love anyway. I initially wanted to review this, partly because it's the only superhero thing Stan Lee is the frontman for that I could tackle on Superhero Rewind, and I feel really weird about criticizing him so much when I kind of just wanted to get to talk about Stan Lee. Again, there's no way to know how much of these decisions are his, and I give him some leeway for his sensibilities of an early time, before the idea of the superhero was expanded and deconstructed and dissected under a microscope by weirdos like myself. The series aired at the tail end of that growing pains period for superhero movies, just before the modern renaissance kicked off by The Dark Knight and Iron Man a year later. Just imagine what this show might have looked like had it been aired even a couple years later. Who Wants to Be a Superhero in 2010 would have been, I think, a totally different animal than it was in 2006. As the genre became a legitimate place to tell serious, sophisticated, and relatable stories, as movies embraced what Stan Lee was doing at Marvel in the 60s, telling stories about real, flawed, complex people who try to be better, the notion of what superheroes are and can be changed. Superheroes aren't thought of as just a kiddie thing anymore, and it's not just losers who never moved out of their parents' basements who enjoy them. I think you could easily get away with a more serious, more sophisticated version of the show today. A show not about a series of overly simplistic, arbitrary superhero rules, but about what stuff you really need to be made of to inspire people and make the world a better place. I don't think giving the show an official numbered score really makes sense, since this isn't a story critique, but I will say, if I was sizing it up against other reality shows, if I was doing like a reality show rewind, I'd probably go with a 2 out of 4. So that's my feedback. I'm going to go get into my regular story analysis mindset, and I consider it a major victory that I managed to hobble some kind of review together for this material. By the source of light, I am Captain Logan, and together united means power. And, uh, in the words of Mr. Mitzvah, L'chaim! Ba, ba.